Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Sports Virus Podcast, everybody. I'm Joe Castellano. We're brought to you by Kane's Tire in San Rafael, California, where they have had the lowest prices in Marin County for over 60 years. Well, today was a real treat. I had a chance to chat with Bob Miller. He was the longtime legendary play-by-play announcer of the Los Angeles Kings. 44 years he was the Kings broadcaster. I remember picking up Kings broadcasts when I was a youngster, a teenager, and he started with the Kings in 1973, didn't retire until 2017, and waited a long time to call his first Stanley Cup championship. Finally got to do that in 2012, and then they followed up with another one two years later. And he has been honored by the Hockey Hall of Fame as the Foster Hewitt Memorial Award winner. That was in 2000. He's also in the Kings Hall of Fame, of course. He's in the Wisconsin Hockey Hall of Fame, the Southern California Sports Broadcasters Hall of Fame. The press box is named after him at Staples Center. And how about this? He's got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and there's a statue outside of Staples Center of Bob Miller, along with Wayne Gretzky and Luke Robitaille. So this man has been honored quite a bit, and deservedly so, for the incredible career that he had behind the microphone. I had the chance to talk with Bob Miller on Wednesday. Here was that conversation. Well, Bob, thank you so much for joining me here on this podcast. It's great to have you on, and uh, I'm curious what you're up to these days after so many years calling hockey games. Yeah, it's uh, I've been retired now for five years, and doesn't seem to be uh, seems to have gone by really fast. We still go to Kings games. We went to about 14 last year just as spectators. I'm still employed by the Kings as a Kings ambassador, which I really enjoy, and that's going out and meeting with fans and talking to them and going to events the Kings put on. And so I I enjoy that part of the job. And it meant that it wasn't a complete break immediately, like, well, tomorrow I've got nothing to do. So uh, I enjoy still continuing to meet the fans and be associated with the team. But uh, then the pandemic hit, and uh, so we haven't done any traveling for five years. I haven't been on a plane in five years. And <laughs> after 44 years of traveling around the U.S. and Canada, uh, that's fine with me. How much do you think the game has changed over the years? What, what are the main areas of the NHL that you notice that are different than you know when you first got started doing broadcasting back in the 70s? Well, as everybody says, the speed of the game. The speed of the game is so much faster now than it ever was before. And players, you know, the defensemen, when I started, they stayed back at the blue line. You didn't go back behind the net and go all over the place. Now, defensemen are all over the ice and, and, uh, and also the influx of European players. They're great, talented players. Um, and, and once the Iron Curtain went down and the Russian players and the others uh, in communist countries could come over here and play, we saw the great talent that those players had. 
Let's go back to when you first started, when you first got to Los Angeles. I'm sure you remember it pretty clearly, but, uh, you know, when you get there, there are so many great broadcasters, first of all, in the other sports. I mean, you've got Vince Scully and you've got Chick Hearn. Uh, you've got Dick Enberg, I think, with the Angels at that time back in the in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So uh, did you talk to those guys about, you know, what it would take to make it in Los Angeles? Well, Chick Hearn actually got me my job. So uh-huh. I, I talked to Chick more than anybody else, but I knew of, of course, of, of Vin and Dick Enberg and, and the other great uh, announcers, Jaime Hareen, the great uh, Hall of Fame Spanish announcer for the Dodgers. I didn't listen to him because I didn't know what he was saying, but, <laughs> but uh, he was around for years and years, and this is his last year uh, with the Dodgers as far as uh, he said he was going to retire. So um, I knew of the tradition of those great announcers, and I grew up in Chicago listening to the White Sox and the Blackhawks and the Bears. And uh, so I, I knew of those announcers and the different styles. You know, I, the, the great thing about growing up in the Midwest, you could go into your room at night and dial around the, the dial on the radio. I don't think kids do that anymore. And I would pick up broad, sports broadcasts all over the Midwest, Minneapolis. St. Louis, Cincinnati, uh, Detroit, and and listen to different announcers. And I think that's where I really got my interest in doing the game. You know, I thought, what a great job. You <laughs> paid to go to the stadium or the <laughs> arena every night and get paid to do the game. And uh, so that's what I wanted to do. Studied that in college, and uh, and it worked out okay. How did you meet Chick Hearn, and how did that come about that you got the job with the Kings through him? Well, he was put in charge of finding a hockey announcer by the owner of the Kings, Jack Kent Cook. That was in 1972, and Chick was a great basketball announcer. I kind of kiddingly say, I don't know if Chick knew a hockey puck from an English muffin, but, but he was in charge of finding a guy. And uh, a friend of mine who had moved to L.A. called me and said, hey, the Kings are looking for an announcer. The first announcer by the Kings, uh, Jiggs McDonald, was going to Atlanta to work for the Atlanta Flames. And that was in 72. So uh, I sent Chick some material, and uh, he called me, and he said, Hey, I really like, uh, I like your material, and uh, you're going to be my choice. So I thought, well, I, I got the job. So then Chick and his wife went to Hawaii, and I never heard anything all summer. I thought, I've got to find out, do I have the job or not? I've got to move there and get established. So I ran into Don Anderson, who was the sports information director at USC. I met him at a, a meeting in Chicago, and I said, did the Kings ever hire an announcer? And he said, yeah, I just saw it in the L.A. Times yesterday. They hired someone from KNX Radio. And I thought, well, gee, I thought I thought I was going to have that job. And uh, what happened was, and I think this is the way Jack Kent Cook worked, Chick would say, this is my pick, and then Cook would pick somebody else <laughs> to show you, well, I'm still the owner, and I make the decisions. So Chick was really upset that nobody called me to tell me that they had made the choice of someone else. And I was disappointed but I stayed uh, in Wisconsin doing University of Wisconsin hockey, 
and uh, the Badgers won the NCAA hockey championship that year. And until we did the Stanley Cup in 2012 that the Kings won, I had never been with another winning team <laughs> until that time. <laughs> so you never know how things are going to work out. It worked out fine for me. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty good that you got to stay and, and win a championship <laughs> there. And then you get the Kings job the next year, right? What what happened there? Yeah, they, they I don't know. They just had some falling out with who they hired. And the same friend of mine called and said, hey, they're not happy with the guy they hired. And uh, I had written to Chick and said, uh, I didn't say, I hear you're not happy. I said, uh, if anything happens, I'm still interested in the job. And uh, I'll send you some additional material, which I did. <clears throat> and then Chick uh, called me one day in the summer and said, come on out here and let's talk about your contract. And you know the way things go. I had been oh, sending out tapes for 13 years. And, you know, you've got you to gotta be ready to be patient and get rejection because you get a lot of that, you know. Oh, you should have been here yesterday. Well, you're not what we wanted and all that stuff. But I sent Chick some more material, and he called me and said, come on out, let's talk about your contract. And uh, so my wife, Judy, and I flew out here in June of 1973, landed at LAX. Chick Hearn and Larry Regan, who was the King's general manager, met, met us and took us out for lunch at Marina del Rey. We were sitting there. It was 106 degrees on that day <laughs> along the beach here. Uh, wow. We were sitting there having lunch, and I was looking at all these yachts and sailboats, and I thought, how much am I going to have to pay them to get this job? Because <laughs> this looks like a great spot. So... <laughs> They said, well, you know, you're you're going to go to Cook's Mansion in Bel Air, sign the contract next week. And uh, so I stayed here kind of looking around for a place to live. And my wife called and she said, the Pittsburgh Penguins just called. And I said, what do they want? <laughs> well, she said, they want to know if you want to do their games. Oh. <laughs> you know, and I was a little afraid to mention it to Chick because, you know, he wanted to get this off his shoulders. I found the guy. He's going to sign the contract. It's, it's, I'm done with this. And, uh, but I mentioned it to him and, uh, he said, Hey, never ever refuse to call back someone who's contacting you about a job. You call them, see what the deal is. If it's good, you take it. If it's not that good, I think you'll be really happy here. And uh, so I did. And it wasn't as good a deal. I didn't think so when the Penguins won a couple of Stanley Cups <laughs> long before the Kings did. But uh, but it worked out great. And uh, Chick uh, passed away 10, 12 years ago, and I, I miss him. We didn't get together socially so much, but I could call him and say, Chick, I need your advice on something. And I think he'd really be pleased that the guy he picked stayed for 44 years with the Kings. So... It all worked out fine, you know. Yeah. And when you first started, of course, that was only radio. And I know you did some simulcasting. And then you transitioned into television. Tell us about making that transition in hockey. And I especially think on the radio, doing hockey. I mean, that is really a challenge. When you first started doing it, uh, I'm sure that there were things that you learned along the way. Because to be descriptive in a game that fast, 
to me is always amazing how hockey announcers do that. And, you know, you did a great job. I remember when I first listened to you, I, I thought, wow, this guy really has it down. Well, thank you. I, that was a, a passion for me from the moment I did the first game. It was the University of Wisconsin game. And I, I just, from the time they dropped the puck, the speed of the game and trying to keep up, as you say, with the action that is so fast and yet be accurate. And I think the key is keep up with the pace of the game, but do it at a pace where the radio listener can understand and get a picture in his mind of what's going on in the game and and like he's right there watching it. And I think that is so very important, especially on radio. And when we transitioned to TV mainly, uh, I, I still almost did a radio play-by-play because I don't think people can just watch the TV of a hockey game and know immediately, well, who's got the puck? And it changes hands, as you know, so quickly. You've almost got to do a radio play-by-play to get the fan really into the game. Uh, if, If the announcers are talking about something else while the game's going on, I find if I'm a viewer, I start doing something else. I read the newspaper, I look at a magazine, <laughs> right. and all of a sudden I hear, he scores. And I thought, well, I didn't even know there, there was a chance that somebody was going to score. So, um, And then I wanted to beat the crowd roar just by a split second so that you could say, you know, so-and-so of the puck shoots, he scores, and the crowd, bang, would come in. And then just lay out and let the fans at home hear that roar of the crowd and I, I, rather than talk over it. And I think that's very important for, for any announcer to do that and let the fan feel like, boy, I'm right in the game. And, and uh, so, you know, and I would listen to tapes and uh, like Chick said, have somebody listen to it, not your mom and dad, because they'll think you're the best announcer they've ever heard. But <laughs> somebody somebody who can really criticize you in a positive way and have you take that criticism for what it's meant, and that is to make you better. You you haven't given me the score in the last three minutes, and you haven't done this, and you haven't done that. But instead of getting upset because someone is criticizing you, take it to mean that's how I can get better. And I'd listen to other announcers and as long as it wasn't a signature thing, comment that they would use in the game, that it would look like I was stealing what, what that announcer used, a description of a certain play in the game, I would say that's a really good way to describe it. And, uh, and I would use that. So I think any of those announcers listen to a game a lot different than fans do. We listen, you know, I would listen when did he give the score? Did he tell me which way the teams are skating? Did he tell me they're in the right wing corner, the left wing corner? Can I get a picture in my mind of what's going on in the game? And uh, those are, to me, really very, very important details. 
One of the great moments in your career occurred in 1982 in the playoffs, the miracle on Manchester. It's something that fans will never forget. I mean, the Kings were down 5 nothing in a playoff game against the Edmonton Oilers that had Wayne Gretzky, and the Kings come back and win in overtime. They score five goals in the third period. They win in overtime. What are your memories of that game? Well, I can almost recite them right here without <laughs> any notes or anything. It was First of all, I was so upset because the the series was a best of five series, and after the first two games, the series was tied one one. So we came back to L.A. and everybody was excited that the Kings had beaten the Oilers one game, a series tied, one game apiece, and we go in and say we're down five nothing at the end of two periods, and I I was just so upset. I said, we get everybody excited, and we go right into the tank. And uh, and even even the Jerry Buss, who owned the team at that time, he left. And I didn't know whether to say something about <laughs> the owner has left. Jeez. I, I wanted to say, I wish he'd have taken me with him. <laughs> it, was, it was really disappointing. And then I thought, well, you come out, you know, like they always say, win the win the third period, at least do something, break the shutout. And so Jay Wells scores the first goal. Doug Smith gets the second. Now it's 5-2, and Charlie Simmer gets the third with about eight minutes to go. Now it's 5-3, and in the forum, the whole crowd, you could just sense their feeling was, we might be able to come back in this game. And... uh and then Mark Hardy scores to make it 5-4. And then the Kings stop a couple of breakaways. Uh, Mario Lassar, the King goalie, stops a couple of breakaways. The Oilers could have wrapped it up. And now it goes down to the final minute. And Jim Fox, uh, eventually my partner on TV, he was playing right wing for the Kings, made a great play against Wayne Gretzky. Gretzky had the puck, and all he had to do was clear it to center ice, and 10 seconds would have been over, and so would the game. But Foxy stood, stepped in front of him, took it away, passed it up the middle to Hardy. Hardy shoots. Save was made by Grant Fuhr. The rebound comes right in front to Steve Bozek, a King rookie. He scores to tie the game, and I look at the scoreboard, five seconds left in the game. And uh, and then it, it, the teams leave the ice, so they resurface it for overtime, and the crowd is just in bedlam. And there's nothing going on except Zamboni resurfacing the ice, but they were cheering and screaming. And uh, so they come out for the overtime, and early in the overtime, maybe a minute in, Mario Lassard slides out of the net to make a save, doesn't get the puck, and Mark Messier has a wide open net. And I thought, oh no, we're coming this far back and we're going to lose in overtime. And Messier's shot goes over the net, and eventually the faceoff comes back into the Oilers' zone. Three rookies up front and win the faceoff, and Daryl Evans just fires a laser shot over the right shoulder of Grant Fuhr, the Oiler goaltender, for the winning goal in the game. So 6-5 
in overtime, and Evans is doing a pirouette down the ice, and the <laughs> whole team is jumping on him, and the, the place is going crazy. The fans are screaming, and uh, now the Oilers win the next game. So the final game, the fifth and final game of the series, is the next night in Edmonton. And we didn't get to the airport till about midnight. So that was one in the morning in Edmonton with the final game that night. Yeah. And they, they couldn't get another charter flight. So both teams flew on the same charter. Huh. They had to get <laughs> special permission from insurance companies and everything. And the Oilers got on and they sat in the back. The Kings sat in the front. As I recall, the referees sat in between, but <laughs> there, there were no pro- there was no problem on the flight except when we got to Edmonton. It was fogged in so bad you could hardly see the tip of the wing. And they told the pilot, "Land in Calgary." He said, "I can't. This this, this game is tonight. They've got to land in Edmonton." So he said, "I'm going to land this plane." They said, well, you're on your own. And one of the flight attendants the next year told me she was up front. And the pilot said, anybody who sees a runway light, let me know. And I'm setting this plane down. So they did. And when they landed, the plane slammed into the into the runway. And a bolt broke, broke out in the console above my head. And, uh, and we, we made it got to the hotel at five in the morning and an elderly woman was vacuuming the lobby. And as the Kings came in, she was shaking her fist at the King players (laughs) saying, you didn't treat my boys very well in LA. (laughs) And Mark Hardy said, lady, it's five 30 in the morning, go home and go to bed. (laughs) And and I thought we're playing a a game that's going to decide this series tonight. And the, and you think, boy, we're not going to have much of a chance. We go out and and just score the first two goals, and we have a seven to four victory in Edmonton over a great Oiler team to win the series and move on. So uh, it was it was still one of the highlights. In addition to the two Stanley Cups in 2012 and 14, uh, in my memory of that game. It's still the greatest single game comeback in Stanley Cup history. Oh, yeah. And that's amazing, the detail that you just recited that with. Uh, It's amazing how you remember it. And, you know, when I think of Wayne Gretzky, when he joined the Kings later on that decade, it's not so much about numbers, Bob. I mean, it's more about just picturing the way he skated around the ice, the way he handled the puck. It was just amazing. What, What about you? When you think of Gretzky with the Kings and, you know, being able to call his games every game, uh, what are your fondest memories of him being a King? I think every night I drove to the game, I would think, what am I going to have a chance to describe tonight (laughs) that Wayne will do that I've never seen before. And there are times that Wayne said he even surprised himself with (laughs) things he'd try and it would work out. So uh, everybody in LA just wanted that chance to see the greatest player, greatest scorer in the history of the game. President Reagan and and his wife Nancy were sitting by the glass. Uh, The uh, celebrities were in the locker room afterwards. Um, 
it was it was unbelievable. Uh, you know, nobody thought Wayne Gretzky would be traded, and uh, and he spent eight years with the Kings, never won a Stanley Cup. We got close in '93 when we got beat by Montreal in the Stanley Cup Finals, but uh, but he was he was a joy to watch. Just his vision of the game and his awareness of what might happen next, and he could anticipate that. Um, he was taught by his father, don't chase the puck. You'll never catch up to it. Go where the puck is going to wind up. And that's what he had to be the uh, ability to do. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. He was so much fun to watch. You also had a, a great time calling the exploits of the Triple Crown line. And I know that was earlier in your career, but that's unforgettable, right? I mean, with Marcel Dion, Dave Taylor, and Charlie Simmer. I mean, that's one of the most uh, memorable lines that uh, stayed together and, and produced. Yeah, no doubt about it. They were the highest scoring line in the league that one year. And uh, I said to people, every time they'd skate, come up the ice with a puck, you'd almost bet they were going to score. Each one of them had their own special uh, ability. Marcel was the pure goal scorer. Dave Taylor would work in the corners. And Charlie Simmer was uh, magnificent at probably kicking pucks into the net, but make it look like it accidentally hit his hit his foot or his leg and and it went in. Uh, so they, they all had their individual talents and just a joy to watch. I mean, they were, they were so exciting. And uh, unfortunately, in the league now, you don't have those three players on the line anymore. You know, like you had the French Connection in Buffalo and you had the production line in Detroit. Then it got away where you'd have two players and the third one would be interchangeable on some of those lines. So the, the Triple Crown line was uh, one of the last really great lines that, that had a, a nickname, and people got, got such a thrill out of watching them play. You mentioned Jimmy Fox, uh, and you worked with him for a long time as your analyst. Uh, you had a number of different analysts, so tell us about uh, you know just making adjustments to different uh, former players and uh, you even work with Nick Nixon, who's a play-by-play guy, and he was an analyst. So, I mean, that must have been interesting. Yeah, I Nick uh, Nick joined us in uh, late uh, early 1981, so he was on hand for the miracle on Manchester. I, I wasn't sure whether he wanted to take the job. He was doing play-by-play in New Haven in the American Hockey League, and uh, our coach at the time had been there, and he said, "Hey, if you're looking for a partner uh, nick nixon does a really good job and i thought yeah but he does play by play and this is this is color does he want to do that so i talked to him and told him you know it's not right now not a play by play job but he said well i i want the opportunity to get into the nhl so he did that and we worked together for nine years and had a great time and he's still doing the play by play uh, maybe in his last year coming up but he's doing the radio play-by-play, and then in 1990, <clears throat> they said we're gonna we're gonna change. Uh, the simulcast is not working out, um, so Jim Fox will be your new partner. And and Foxy, we worked together for 27 years, wow. the longest of any 
play-by-play and color announcer in the league at that time. And uh, I give Foxy a lot of credit because he played 10 years for the Kings at right wing, had no training in broadcasting, and he really was not very good. And he's the first to tell you that at the beginning. And uh, I, I think he almost quit. He said, I just think I embarrass myself every night I go on the air. And uh, finally, one night, midway through the first season, he had a really good game. And I said to him afterwards, Jim, I think you enjoyed yourself tonight. He said, yeah, I did. And, uh, and because he worked at it, he was at every practice, talked to coaches, players. He was successful and still is and is an outstanding analyst for the L.A. Kings. I, I think uh, the best or at least among the best in the NHL. So uh, I enjoyed those 27 years. We'll have more with legendary Los Angeles Kings play-by-play announcer Bob Miller right after this. When it's time for new tires, you want the lowest prices and the best service, don't you? Well, Kane's Tire in San Rafael has you covered on both. Kane's has the lowest prices in Marin County, and they provide the warm and welcoming service that you can only receive from a family-run business. Voted best of Marin for 35 years in a row, Kane's prices beat Costco's prices every time. Kane's Tire, 1531 4th Street in San Rafael. Give him a call at 415 453 that's 415-453-2942 for Kane's Tire. This is for you, Kings fans, wherever you may be. All the frustration and disappointment of the past is gone. The 45-year drought is over. The Los Angeles Kings are indeed the Kings of the National Hockey League. They are the 2012 Stanley Cup champions. The countdown is on. Three, two, one. It's over. That's the voice of Bob Miller calling the final seconds of the 2012 Stanley Cup. And now we're back with Bob Miller and Bob that had to be gratifying for you after all of those years of waiting to finally get a Stanley Cup in Los Angeles with the Kings. I can only imagine how excited you were. Well, I told fans, I said, my biggest fear is I'll retire and they'll win the Stanley Cup the next year. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I was glad to see him do that in 2012. And we didn't have a great season in 2012. You know, they changed coaches midway through the year. Daryl Sutter came in, did a great job, and then we got in the playoffs and just ripped through every series. We had a 3 nothing series lead in all four series, and it was like came out of nowhere and um, uh, finished with 16 wins, four losses to win it. And the greatest thing about the, the, the night that we won the Cup against New Jersey, we had a big lead with about five minutes to go, and you knew, you know, we're going to win it. We're leading six to one, and fans had a chance to celebrate. Players could celebrate. And fans were chanting, we've got the cup, and Jimmy Fox was so superstitious. He's, he's waving, no, don't say that, don't say that. <laughs> I'm thinking, Foxy, there's three minutes to go. If we blow a five-goal lead, 
we don't deserve the cup. And uh, but uh, he's just so superstitious. But he was overjoyed, and so was I, to see Dustin Brown get that cup and skate around center ice with it. It was uh, it was just magnificent. And uh, my wife, we went to a Stanley Cup party and. Said to my wife, "Are we going to go to every one of these Stanley Cup parties?" <laughs> she said, "Of course. We may never see this again. Two years later, we see it again." Right. <laughs> you know, and we so we have. Uh, I said, "It's great Stanley Cup party. You need no entertainment, just the Stanley Cup." And everybody there is just so excited to see it. They'd come up to me and say, "Can I touch this?" I said, "Yeah, you can touch it. Can I hold it?" I said, "Can I hug it?" I said, "Yeah, you can hug it." They said, can I kiss it? I said, yeah, we're giving free tetanus shots in the back of the room. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, it's interesting, too, because not a lot of uh, local announcers get to call a Stanley Cup because you have the national broadcast. But from what I understand, you guys recorded <laughs> the broadcast, right? So that they still had distribution of your play-by-play call with Jim Fox. So that was a unique situation, right? Yeah, it was. It was, and they had to get permission, I think, from the networks to do it because they had the rights. So we we uh, taped that, recorded it, and it was put in a souvenir book on the winning of the Stanley Cup. So you could buy that, listen to Jim and myself do the play-by-play, and you could hear uh, Nick Nixon and Daryl Evans on radio on the other side of the disc. And uh, so, you know, we, we did it uh, like it was like we were on the air live. And um, uh, that was a thrill for me to be able to do that. And so, uh, you know, it just, uh, uh, I think the way it should be when you get to the Stanley Cup final, let the network do it and let, have the home announcers do it or the announcers that followed their team all year long, let them do it too. And let the fans decide who they want to listen to. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, give them a chance to do it. Because the guy doing the game all year, now the biggest moment of his life, they say, well, now you can't do it. So I don't think that's right. You know, let them do it and let the fans decide which uh, which uh, broadcast they want to listen to. So so it worked out great for us. And I've still got that disc and, and still have some souvenirs around here and uh, and uh, it was it was great 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 moments absolutely and i think you're right i think the other sports too with baseball and basketball they should allow those announcers to to do the uh championships of, of all those sports well bob thanks so much for the time really appreciate it i mean this has been fun taking a walk down memory lane here with the uh, la kings and your career uh and hope to talk to you again soon okay joe i appreciate it i had a great time reliving those memories and uh, good luck to you too that's bob miller thanks to him for joining us on the sports virus podcast we'll be back again soon for now i'm joe castellano thanks for listening on the believe podcast network thank you for listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.